So let me direct your attention with the, with the intent of instruction today to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And we've titled this lesson, Come Now. Come Now. Kent Hughes, in a series of volumes called Preaching Through the Word, uh, or it might be called Preach the Word, he talks about Sebastian Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach. And in that, he mentions this. I thought this was interesting. It was said of Bach's music that it is not merely agreeable like other composers, but it transports us to the regions of the ideal. It does not arrest our attention momentarily, but grips us the stronger, the oftener we listen to it. So that, after a thousand hearings, its treasures are still unexhausted and yield fresh beauties to excite our wonder. I thought that was a fascinating quote and see that also applied to the Word of God. So instead of thinking of Sebastian's music, let's think about the Word of God, particularly the book of Isaiah. Listen, it transports us to the regions of the ideal. It does, <clears throat> it does not arrest our attention momentarily, but grips us the stronger, the oftener we listen to it. So that after a thousand hearings, its treasures are still unexalted, unexhausted and yield fresh beauties to excite our wonder. And so it is with the book of Isaiah. It seems like one simple reading is just not enough. The more we read it, the more, as it says here, the more we, that it yields its fresh beauties to excite our wonder. Folks have said that the book of Isaiah, that Isaiah is sort of like the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament. Isaiah in the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul in the new. When you go to Isaiah chapter 1, which is where we'll be this morning, it is of course followed by a number of other chapters and we find that these chapters that follow identify the writer to us. He is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. The word prophet comes from a root that means to bubble forth as from a fountain. To bubble forth as from a fountain. Hence, the idea of prophecy contains in it the idea of utterance, something that bubbles forth from deep down inside. Of course, we know that the prophet was a preacher whose sole job it was to utter the message God gave him. It was not his role to adjust the message. It was not his role to make the message more palatable or to make it more appealing. It was not his role to embellish the message, to edit the message, or to diminish the message. The job of the prophet was to deliver the message God had given. And that's what Isaiah does. Isaiah was a prophet to a particular kingdom. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem... In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we're not left to wonder regarding the audience to whom Isaiah preaches. God had a message for Judah, which tells us then that, 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 that Isaiah was one of the prophets in the 
pre-exilic history of Israel. By that we mean this. You know that there would be a time when Israel would be, excuse me, yeah, when Israel would be divided. Israel was divided in two kingdoms when Isaiah preaches. You have the northern kingdom, ten and a half tribes of the north, typically called Israel. The southern kingdom, two and a half tribes in the south, typically called Judah. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom after warning, after warning, after warning. God had no other choice but to finally, because God is just, but to finally judge. And so the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians and they were pulled out of the northern kingdom and they were dispersed among the nations, so to speak. And the southern kingdom should have learned from that, but they did not. And so, because God is a merciful God, because God does not delight in judgment, because God is a merciful God, He sends Isaiah to the kingdom of Judah to warn them. And so we see that it is also time-stamped. Isaiah prophesied during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So it's believed that he began his ministry about 740 years before Christ was born. His ministry continued to about 690 B.C. His name means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. And if one were to read the book of Isaiah, it seems that he has access to priests and kings. It seems that he has easy access to people in high-ranking positions, which may infer that he himself is from a family that had a high-ranking position. He had two sons. Isaiah had two sons. According to Isaiah 7, verse 3, one of those sons was named Shear Jashub, which means a remnant still. Every time... Isaiah looked at that firstborn son. It was a reminder, and his name was a reminder, as that firstborn son would grow and mature, that there would be a remnant, a remnant shall return. There would be a group of people eventually, after the exile to Babylon, who would come back. His secondborn son, and you won't find this on a coffee mug or a keychain, Mayor Shalal Hashbaz. Common spelling. And it means hastening to the spoil, hurrying to the prey. It's found in Isaiah 8.3, Isaiah 8.3. And his name was a reminder of the, of the mad lust for conquest that the Syrians had. So you see his, his uh, second-born son, his name speaks of God's chastening, God's judgment. His firstborn son's name is a name of hope, but there will be a remnant. The nation shall not be destroyed. Israel shall not be extinct. Judah shall not be wiped off the face of the map. But there will be a remnant that will one day return back to Judah. But if, they, if, if, the, if Judah does not repent, rest assured, the Assyrians will hastily come in and devour the land. A good resource, oftentimes in Bible study, is the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. 
You may find a reference to it as you're reading along in a commentary or whatever. It's usually referred to by its initials, I-S-B-E. So often it gets called ISBE. But it stands for International, uh, International um, what I said, ISBE, 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 ISBE. International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, there it is. Here's what they write about Isaiah. This caught my eye. Of all celebrated prophets, Isaiah is the king. One great theme permeates his writings. Salvation by faith. Hence, he's called the Paul of the Old Testament. Salvation by faith. Before we read any further and continue in verse 2, because we will find in uh, uh, chapter 1 and uh, verses 18 through 20, we will find here a, an outline that just naturally breaks down. But before we get to that, I like what Kent Hughes writes about Isaiah and in his, in his introduction. He says, Isaiah interrupts our familiar way of thinking. Catch that. Isaiah interrupts. This is good preparation. Isaiah interrupts our familiar way of thinking. God is disruptive. I think we could say amen to that. You and I, before we were saved, just going along in sin, not concerned about our souls, not concerned about the fact that the hand of God was holding back His wrath from off of our lives while we were in our sin. But then we heard about our sin and how, how that in the courts of heaven we're guilty and how that there is judgment to come. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. We also heard of God's mercy. But in the process of that, our regular way of thinking was disrupted. Without His Word, Hughes continues, we are bound by our own pretenses. We are bound by our own bluffs. With His Word, new realities open up. Left to ourselves, catch this, we live on the level of impressions, hunches, and gut reactions. Boy, isn't that the truth? How often would we say, I feel like I'm okay with God. I feel like everything's okay. I feel like I should go to heaven. He says, we are blind to the things we most need to know. We are blind to the things we most need to know. The passage before us opens before us like a four-sliced tangerine. Once you get past the peeling, they are each filled with life-nourishing truth. I remember on a Monday, I was going to this key passage, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. And on a Monday, we couldn't get away from that text, and so we jotted it down. On Tuesday, I had the opportunity to dig into that text a little bit more. On Wednesday, develop some kind of an outline of the text. On Thursday, dig deeper. On Friday, try to look for illustrations. But I remember that text in chapter 1, verse 18. Look at that verse with me. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And that caught my attention. And so we call this lesson, come now. Come now. For what purpose? To reason together with God. And this does break down into four passages. I have an outline different than what Hughes has, but... We start first with the confrontation. 
the confrontation. And we begin in verse 1, moving through verse 10, the confrontation. Here's what we read again in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. For from the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. And so we find that the Lord basically presents his case against the people of Judah. You know, in Isaiah chapter 53, we find a text that's echoed also in 1 Peter. The text is, by his stripes ye are healed. And oftentimes that gets pulled out of context. And the idea gets presented that every disease we have was healed in the atonement. By his stripes are ye healed. So we should never be sick because our diseases are healed in the atonement. And I tell you that is resting a verse out of its context because the context is Isaiah chapter 1. And when you look at Isaiah chapter 1, the sickness is not a physical sickness. The sickness is a sin sickness. And it may have physical results, but it is a sin sickness. And nothing man can do can heal our sin sickness. Open sores, oozing sores, nothing being applied to it, nothing being done about it. And so the cure is in the cross. The cure for man's sin sickness is the blood of Jesus Christ and, and the Lamb who died in our place. That's the cure for it. And that's what, I, and that's what Peter echoes over in First Peter. And so we find God's indictment here, the accusation here regarding the people of Israel. There's no soundness in them. You saw it with me in verse, in verse 5. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, verse 6 says, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Wounds, 
bruises, putrefying sores. And so the nation is seen as thoroughly riddled with this sin sickness. Again, no hope. No hope. And as a result of this, they are unable to do anything that would give God honor, give God glory. So, so that first part is that confrontation. And you would say, well, in this confrontation, you can almost imagine some of them being shocked. We didn't know that was our condition, they might say. What do you mean, sick? From head to toe. What do you mean open source? We worship you. We bring sacrifices to you. We obey the book of Moses, the books of Moses when it comes to the feasts and the celebrations. What do you mean that we're sick? So you have this confrontation. Here's your true condition. Here's what the great physician sees. Nothing hidden from his eyes. He looks past the surface into the heart. No soundness. And here's the accusation that begins in verse 11 and 15. So you have the confrontation, verses 1 through 10. The accusation, accusation, verses 11 through 15. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams, and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wow. This almost reminds me of of a text that gets referred to often over in Matthew chapter 7, where there's a group of people standing before the Lord and with great urgency and great panic and great anxiety. Lord, Lord, have we not cast out devils in thy name? Have we not done many wonderful works? And Jesus says, depart from me, away with me, out of my presence. I never knew you. By the very things that those people in Matthew chapter 7 were doing, Do not give them any credit before God. They were not rungs to climb the ladder to be right with God. But instead, those things that they thought would count for them count thoroughly against them. And this is what we find in Isaiah chapter 1. That those things that these people thought should give them credit with God actually counted against them. The very acts and rituals that they were observing were basically acts and rituals where they were faking their relationship with God. Um, The Lord did not want their rituals. They've reached a point of crisis. Judgment seems inedible. It's inevitable. It's at this moment, the very point when judgment is expected, when grace intervenes. 
But when, as, as we read through these verses, we find that God is not pleased with hypocrisy. Somebody wisely said, there are three types of believers. There are believers, there are unbelievers, and there are make-believers. And that's what was going on in Judah. They were making believe that they were, that they were obedient to God and locked on. They would worship God on the holy days and the solemn assemblies, but then they also had absolutely no problem in participating in the fertility rites of, of the false gods of, uh, that they were worshiping. They had no problem attending the high places of the idols that they were worshiping. And God would not have any of that. And so you see this in, in verse, in verse uh, 15. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. So we have so far the confrontation. God confronts Israel through Isaiah. We have the accusation. And then we have this marvelous invitation. When, when judgment is in, inevitable, here comes grace. Here comes grace. Look at this. Uh, he says at the end of verse 16, excuse me, at the end of verse 15, your hands are full of blood. Then we come to 16. The great invitation. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. That is, seek, seek justice. Seek Seek to do right. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. That means to, to hear their case and, and judge rightly. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Israel's case is dire. It, their, their condition is dire. Their condition is deadly. And you would expect at this moment that judgment would intervene. But God, because He loves His people, sends Isaiah the prophet with this great invitation. All hope is not lost. There is a way out. There is a way back. There is a way to be reunited with God. The divine judge reasons with the accused. And I, I find this absolutely incredible. There is this amazing and generous offer that is made. Catch that. An amazing and generous, amazing and generous offer that is made. And it is this. Nothing less than total, complete, and absolute pardon. Whoa. They've been entrenched in this condition for decades. From generation to generation. But God offers total and complete pardon. And that, that basis for that pardon is laid out in the rest of the book of Isaiah. But let's take a look at Isaiah 53 just to refresh your mind with God's provision. And many times when something is 
delivered from a pulpit. It's live-streamed, and it is often archived. That may be the case with this. So it would do us well to go to Isaiah 53. We'd be remiss if we did not go to this verse, or these verses. In verse 4, I'm sorry, we'll start in verse, we'll start in verse uh, 1, Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Referring now to our, our Savior, the one who grew up as a tender plant, the one who, who uh, uh, does not have beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, that is outward beauty. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We despised him and esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken of God and afflicted. When, when the religious people looked at Jesus, they said, Aha, he's getting what he deserves from God. He must, it's his own sin. It's his own sin. But the fact is, no, it was for our sin he was stricken. It was for our sin. We have the opportunity from time to time to talk to uh, children about the substitutionary death of Christ. The theological term is the vicarious death of Christ, the vicarious death of Christ. But 10-year-olds don't understand the word vicarious, but they do understand what a substitute is. Sometimes in California, there are restaurants that try to serve us healthy food. And sometimes on the children's menu, it will be like, chicken tenders and broccoli. Now, when I mention that to children, there, there are those unusual children who say, I love broccoli. I say, just hush. <laughs> but if, my, if we were there and, and my children had the opportunity uh, to have a say, they would ask the server, excuse me, could I have French fries for my broccoli? Now, the server understands exactly what the word for means in that instance. The children are not asking for French fries so that they may serve it to their broccoli. They're not asking for French fries for the benefit of their broccoli. And many times the word for talks about that, right? As a benefit. Yes, Jesus died for us. That is, he died and we are benefited from that. He died for, for our uh, advancement. He died for our benefit. If I am a good brother and I say I got a puppy for my sister, you think, oh, how kind. He's, he got a puppy, got a dog to give to his sister for her benefit. But oftentimes the word for, that little three-letter word, often means in the place of. In the place of. And kids know what a substitute is. We ask them many times, when your regular teacher does not show up in class and somebody else is in that teacher's place, what do you call that teacher? Of course, some kids who are homeschooled say, Dad, because mom's usually the teacher, the substitute is Dad, but they know a substitute. That's right, a substitute. A substitute. Somebody in place of another. And the word for talks about that substitution. For someone to be a substitute, they've got to meet at least four qualifications. They need to be available. They need to be willing. They need to be qualified. And they need to be at the right place at the right time. Jesus was available. He was willing. He wasn't conned into dying for us. And he was qualified. He was sinless, hence he could die for sinful man. He was sinless. He was also the unique combination of God and man, as much God as though he'd never been man, as much man as though he'd never been God. 
And he hung there suspended between heaven and earth, paying the price for our sin. He died for us. This is what Romans says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says that God commendeth, that he commends his love, he demonstrates his love, he proves his love. Not proved, not demonstrated, it's a present tense. God commendeth, God commends, he shows his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not just as uh, as something to benefit us, but died in our place. And this is what Isaiah 53 teaches us, doesn't it? Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And again, that goes back to Isaiah chapter 1 that we're looking at. The sin sickness from head to foot, open, oozing, putrefying sores, and no remedy being applied, corrupt thoroughly. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Heavenly Father focused upon Christ with like a laser beam focus, focused upon Christ, directed upon Christ the judgment for our iniquity, for our sin. Now, the Holy Spirit could have used the word in verse 6, transgression. Could have used the word wickedness. Could have used the word sin, but chose the word iniquity. There's a shade of difference between them. They, they can be synonymous, but there is a shade of difference. This word iniquity talks about a twistedness, a perverseness. We have deviated from God's plan, deviated from God's will. And the thing about this word iniquity is it is a deliberate deviation, a deliberate twistedness, a deliberate perverseness. So he has taken our sin upon himself. Back to Isaiah chapter 1. Back to Isaiah chapter 1. So there's this marvelous invitation. Come now and let us reason together. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins, Isaiah 1.18, I'm sorry, Isaiah 1.18, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. See, the, it, these uh, people of Judah thought that they were as white as a lily in the field, yet they were blood red with guilt. They were secure in their religious practices, but there was a death sentence hanging over their heads. Grace is always hard for rebels to understand. Grace is always hard for rebels to understand. Why would God love me? Why would God give me the uh, offer of salvation? Well, it's called grace. It's not rooted in our deserving and it's not rooted in who we are or what we'll do. It's rooted in the love and the mercy and the grace and the character of God. But it is hard for rebels to understand this grace of God because their views of God are small. They think that God is petty like we are. 
That God, that God is vengeful like we are. And so they, they have a view of God that is small. Sophocles once said this. He said, the keenest sorrow, the keenest sorrow is to recognize ourselves as the sole cause of all our adversities. Catch that. We always blame everybody else or we blame God. But it may be that our adversities are God getting our attention. It may be our adversities are God putting us on our back. So the only way we can look is up and finally see the one that we need. The one who's more than enough. The, the one who is satisfying. The one, the one who does fulfill. The keenest sorrow is to recognize ourselves as the sole cause of all our adversities. Why am I so miserable? Well, maybe it's because of me. And yet restoration is available. And the, the, the pathway to the restoration was not ritual, but repentance. Not ritual, but repentance. So we have the, we, we have the confrontation followed by the accusation and then this marvelous invitation. Israel, you do not, or Judah, you do not have to stay in that condition. Though your sins be as scarlet, they don't have to be as scarlet. I can wash them white as snow. Though they be crimson, I can make them as white as wool. There's, there's, a, there's a change available to you. There's forgiveness available. There's a cleansing available. Turn to me, God says. I'm the source of that cleansing. It'll be based upon the Lamb of God that is coming. Put your faith in the Lamb of God that is coming, that will die, uh, die for you. For you and me, it's, the cleansing is available same basis, the Lamb of God. But we look back to the Lamb of God, right? We understand from 1 Peter chapter 1, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, you and I cannot give enough silver and gold to earn salvation, nor from your vain conversation, where conversations talk about behavior, right? Behavior, rituals, uh, patterns, habits, nor from your vain conversation, which you receive by, which you receive by tradition from your fathers, that's not what makes us redeemed. We're not redeemed by how much we give. We're not redeemed by, by how much we sacrifice. We're not redeemed by our rituals, our habits, our patterns. Well, this was good enough for my mom and dad. It's good enough for me. We're not redeemed by that. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Praise the Lord. Yeah, and listen, we... We can't give enough to earn salvation or to earn redemption or to merit it. I can't give billions of dollars and, and earn salvation by doing that. Nor could I earn salvation or merit salvation by giving God my life. Salvation is rooted in the cross. It's rooted in the Christ. It's rooted in the commitment that God has made. Our salvation is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. It's rooted in the provision that he made on the cross. And it's rooted in the promises that God has made regarding those who will put their faith and trust in Christ and receive him. So we find, we find two types of saviors referred to in, in Isaiah chapter 1. We find the Savior of the culture. The Savior that's personalized. But this is how I want to worship God. He should be happy with this. 
Now, if I were God, I'd be pleased with this. The personalized Savior. The uh, stylized Savior. The self-designer Savior. That's all that you find. All of that is there in, in the Lord's confrontation with, is, with Judah and in the Lord's accusation against Judah. It's a personalized Savior. But then you find a personal Savior. Not one made in our liking, not one fashioned according to our tastes, but one who has died for us personally. And the great invitation in these verses, verses 19 and 20, again, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. There is a decision that needed to be made. We can also divide this passage into two sections. I found this rather interesting. You find Judah's debilitating disconnect. Catch that. Judah's, the, the people, the, the kingdom, debilitating. That is, that there was no power to please God, honor God, or glorify God in and of themselves. Their disconnect. The very things they were doing to try to connect with God were actually separating them from Him. Because what they were doing was, was filled to the brim with hypocrisy. They would, they would worship God on the Sabbath, but then the rest of the week worship other gods. Boy, we're very much like that in our culture, aren't we? We are very much like that. Why shouldn't God bless me? I go to church on Sunday. You know, why shouldn't God bless me? I, I've memorized Bible verses. Why shouldn't God bless me? So we find Judah's debilitating disconnect. And it would keep them, un, that would render them unable to please God, honor God, obey God. That's the first part. The second part would be Jehovah's invigorating reconnect. The more they continue on in the way they were going, the more lifeless they would become. But we have Jehovah, the wonderful God who is present, the wonderful God who is there, the wonderful God of, the, of, of covenants. He is there, and we find that following Him invigorates. Following Him gives life. The rituals, the rituals they were observing did not give them life. If anything, it would leave them more drained. But, but, it, but there is life in God. There is life in Jehovah. And He's wanting to reconnect with them. He doesn't write them off. But He says, come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Don't you love that? Though your sins be as scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I remember in high school, as one of the classes that we had, I attended Huntington Beach High School uh, for two and a half years of my high school career. Our high school was built right across the street, excuse me, they built right across the street from the high school a police station. It, was, it may still be the headquarters of the Huntington Beach Police Department. And I remember one of the things we did as a field trip is we went to the Orange County Courthouse. I don't remember the name of the class, but I thought it was a great exercise. And we had the opportunity to sit in a courtroom where there were actual cases being conducted. And then, of course, that uh, set the stage as a juror later on, kind of knew what to expect. So we visited a courthouse in our town, had the opportunity to sit in on some cases. 
What Isaiah does is he takes us into the into a courtroom, God's courtroom. The one that's on trial is Judah. Judah has no case. The court wants more than ritual worship. There must be the evidence of a changed life. Isaiah, God's spokesman, issues God's decree of guilty to a very religious people. And they were religious. They could sacrifice to God in the temple and then to Baal on the hillsides and partake in the fertility cult gardens. These were a people who were thoroughly religious, but they're found guilty. But the judge offers this amazing pardon if they would just turn to him and rest in his provision. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. Perhaps this morning you are under a weight of sin. Perhaps this morning you sense God's condemnation. And uh, perhaps this morning that great offer is something that you would hear and heed and you would turn to the Lamb of God and put your faith and trust in the provision that He has made on your behalf as your substitute. Come now, let us reason together. I can't help but believe that there's a world out there. They may not understand their condition. They're much like Judah, just happily, merrily going along their way. But God wants to create a disturbance God wants to shake them out of their complacency. He wants to show us our true condition, but also the only remedy, and that's Christ. All right, introduction to the book of Isaiah. Hope that's a help to you and an encouragement to you. It reminds me of what I had the opportunity to receive and what I availed myself of at 10 years old when I called upon Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Though my sins were red like crimson, they were made as white as snow. God washed my sins away. I trust that's your testimony as well. Let's have a word of prayer.